One of the favorite assignments my teachers used to give me when I was in high school and had to do a book report was the compare and contrast essay. That's something that you probably were traumatized by, so if I'm, uh, if I'm going on too long about that, please don't get triggered. I'll move on in a few minutes. <laughs> but it is to say that uh, one of the most interesting ways that you, or reasons you do that is because it starts bringing forth what the author is intending. Oftentimes, he places two different uh, situations or two different characters to help highlight differences uh, in human beings, highlight differences, and to sort of resolve some of the conflicts that are present. I mention that because today, uh, Mark's gospel is particularly good at <coughs> inviting us to compare and contrast. If you've been following along in Mark's gospel, we're now up to Mark chapter 5, but you've been finding that throughout the gospel stories, uh, G or Mark continually places contrasts uh, throughout the gospel. One of his favorite ways that he does that is, is that Jesus keeps getting into a boat and crossing to other sides of the lake. And you think, well, why do I need that detail? He went somewhere else and he talked. Partly because Mark wants us to look and see what happened on one shore, compare and contrast what happens on the next shore. So one shore he talks to Pharisees, the next shore he talks to Gentiles, the next shore he talks to poor people and rich. Here Mark's gospel employs another technique that's particularly effective at encouraging us to compare and contrast. Because here in Mark's gospel he tells us one story stuck right in the middle, sandwiched between another story. You may have asked yourself, why does Mark do that? Why doesn't he just sort of say, well, I've begun a story, I'll get to the end of it, and oh, by the way, after I finish the story, I'll tell you what happened on the way. He doesn't. Instead, Mark begins this story and starts telling us the story of Jairus, a synagogue leader, coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, come to my house. My daughter is deathly ill. I want you to come and heal her. But on the way, Jesus stops because of an encounter with an unnamed woman who has a hemorrhage. That means she continually bleeds. And so she's not been healed. She reaches out, touches the cloak of his garment. She's healed. Jesus speaks with her and then goes on, finds that by the time he gets to the house, that little daughter has died. And then Jesus spectacularly raises her from the dead. But if you look at what goes on in this story, I believe Mark is telling us in the middle of this story another story because he wants us to compare the two and contrast them. It's as if Mark is saying, I'm going to start this story, but I want you to bookmark this. Don't forget it. I'm going to tell you another story, and as I go back, because this is in the back of your mind, as you're hearing this second story, you can compare it effectively. And that's what I'd like to do with the sermon today, to look at a contrast between the two figures that are here in the story, and then encouragement to compare Jesus' reaction to both of them. So where's the contrast? Here's a few things that will suggest there's a pretty severe contrast that Mark wants to show between these two people. Look, for example, at the first person. One of the leaders of the synagogue named Jairus came and when he saw him fell at his feet and begged him repeatedly, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. Compare that with the description of this woman. There was a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years. She had endured much under many physicians, had spent all she had and she was no better but rather grew worse. She heard about Jesus came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak, for she said, if I but touch his clothes, I will be made well. Here's a couple of things that are really interesting about those two interactions. And those two interactions, I think, suggest there's a real difference between a person who is in the inner circle and a person who is outside of the circle. First thing to notice between the two. Did you notice that one person has a name and the other person isn't given a name? 
Jairus, we are told his name. This woman, we're not told her name. Here's the second thing. A culture that privileged men in great ways and a culture that uh, put women as a substandard uh, way. You've got two contrasts there between a man and a woman. What else do you have as a contrast? You have Jairus is a synagogue leader. Here's a person with position and authority. And you can see his confidence because they come straight up to Jesus and speaks to him directly about his need. But this woman is shy to do it. Probably a part of the reason is because she is a person who is not important, doesn't want to bother Jesus, thinks she can sneak up and grab his cloak and get something she needs from him, as opposed to Jairus, who's expected to be able to talk to people uprightly. These two huge contrasts. The other contrast is Jairus is healthy and well. This woman is broken and hurting. We find these two contrasts particularly interesting, and I think the reason is because what Mark wants to highlight for us is that those people, although they're extremely different, there's something that's similar about the way Jesus treats them. Jesus treats them with the same dignity and respect, regardless of who they are, even though they're on opposite sides of the spectrum. Think about Jairus comes and says, my daughter is deathly ill, and Jesus comes to his house. But what do we find? Jesus knows, of course, that this girl is going to die, and he's going to do a spectacular thing by raising her from the dead. But instead of hurrying and saying, this woman is not as important and I won't take the time, Jesus stops and speaks to her face to face and says, not only did I heal this woman by her touching the cloak of my garment, I want to speak to her and have an interaction with her because she is a person with human dignity that I will interact with on a personal level. Jesus treats Jairus, the important official, and this woman unnamed and unimportant by the standards of the day in exactly the same way and exactly meets both of their needs. Now this is particularly important for us because of course we've heard all the time, and how many times do we hear it from the time we're in Sunday school until we grow older, Jesus loves everyone the same. But it's so easy for us to hear this again and again and not actually absorb the power of what that means. How easy is it for us to say, yes, 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 Jesus loves us all, and forget that Jesus actually means it? It's particularly difficult for us, I think, to really take this seriously and believe it, because frankly, it is not what we see in this life. We do not see this operating in our culture, and frankly, if we're honest with ourselves, we do not see it operating in our own lives. How often have we heard stories about egregious examples of people discriminating with prejudice? I described a few weeks ago about that incident in the United States where two black men who went into a Starbucks were denied service and arrested simply because the color of their skin meant the manager thought these people must be trouble, even though they'd done nothing wrong. Or we've heard, particularly around uh, National Indigenous Peoples Day, uh, very recently about the casual racism that many uh, indigenous uh, First Nations people have experienced throughout their lives and historically. And we can say, well, clearly our society, even when in our constitution we're guaranteed the right to be treated equally, our culture has not done that. But frankly, it's too easy for us to say, well, out there our institutions are doing badly. Our culture is doing badly, but not me. I'm not a racist. But how many of us, if we're really honest, say, frankly, we often treat people very differently because of many external circumstances in their lives? I'll give you a, a simple example that happens to me all the time. How often is it do we assess the importance of what a person says based on their age? I've got little girls. 
And so I can tell you, when somebody comes to me at church and says something really difficult happened to me, a conflict in the office, I'm really troubled by it. Do you have a few minutes to discuss? I'll say, sure, of course, this is important. There's an adult thing going on. But my seven-year-old comes home and says, something happened uh, at school today, and there was a big argument, or somebody said something mean, and I say, well, I'm busy right at the moment. Why do I do that? Because I've said, you've got an adult problem, and it is important to you, and I will take time, but you've got a childhood problem, not important to adults, and so I won't take time. But it's just as important from her eyes as the office disagreement is to the older person's eyes. Do I take the time and make the sacrifice to say, I will listen to your little problem, even though from my perspective, it doesn't seem like a big deal. Why do I do that? Simply because of the person's age. Or think about the many ways in which we've been treated or we treat other people, and sometimes unconsciously. How do we treat a person who's well-dressed as opposed to a person who comes to us dressed in rags? This person's important and wealthy. This person's poor and not. How do we change our attitude towards a person because they speak intelligently as opposed to us judging them to be a person not so intelligent? Or a person with a PhD after their name as opposed to the person who only has high school? Or a person we consider attractive as opposed to a person we don't consider attractive? How easy is it for us, frankly, unconsciously to treat people differently even if we know in our minds we are all created in the image of God We all have the same standing in the eyes of God. Do we actually treat people that way? We don't. Now, I say this not simply to give you a guilt trip. It is important that we need to work towards overcoming this, to rely on God's grace to help us not to be a respecter of persons. But we're fallen human beings. We're frail. And all of us have biases that this side of heaven we will never never fully be rid of. But why I tell you this is not simply to encourage you to do better, because that can easily seem like finger wag. I tell you this because it says that we fall into this attitude that because we see this day in and day out and we see it even in ourselves, we make the unconscious assumption that that's exactly what Jesus is like. Sure, he tells us he loves us all equally, but when push comes to shove, we know very well that he listens to some people more than others. How easy do we do this in the church? Father Stephen has a collar. He's got his fancy little stole on. Obviously, his prayers matter more. Obviously, he's more important in God's eyes than the rest of us. How false that is and how stories like this show us how completely false it is. Jesus gives the same dignity and respect to both people, and he does it more than giving platitudes. He actually makes sacrifices and takes time with the people who need it. And we see this all the time. How it is that when people come to Jesus, he doesn't seem to care about anything of their external circumstances when he gives them his time. When he's invited by Simon the Pharisee, we're told in the Gospels, he goes and eats with Simon the Pharisee. But when Zacchaeus, the tax collector, says, come and eat it, uh, uh, come, uh, and he wants to listen to Jesus, Jesus stops and says, today, Zacchaeus, I'm going to eat at your house. Tax collector, Pharisee, I don't care. I guess Jesus likes free meals just like the rest of us do. (laughs) But here's the important thing. He gets huge flack from a guy like Simon whenever he goes to hang out with a guy like Zacchaeus and he doesn't care. When a woman is caught in adultery red-handed doing something deeply wrong, he doesn't just pretend the sin's not there. But at the same time, he protects her and says, you who are without sin, cast the first stone. I go to people's houses because they're all sinners and I don't really care. What I care is about them and releasing them from the things that bind them. It is so important for us to hear because we come to Jesus sometimes subconsciously doubting whether our situation in life merits the importance, uh, merits the kind of uh, focus that Jesus gives to people who seem to be doing better with life. 
If you're getting things together, you're doing well with life, it may be very tempting for you to expect that God will do something greater for you than others. It's humbling for us to recognize when we're in that circumstance that God cares for you, yes, but he cares for others too. Humble yourself as Jairus did. Jairus, a man who humbles himself to come to Jesus, and he does it because he knows that he needs him just as much as this woman does. But I find it particularly encouraging when I feel like my life is just not all together. You know, I'm having really challenges in my marriage and not being a great husband. I'm finding myself frustrated with my kids and I'm not doing such a great job with them. Or maybe I haven't been giving 100% to my job. Or frankly, I've been messing up in the same way again and again. And it is so tempting to say, subconsciously, Jesus is not interested in hearing me. But this story tells us that's completely false. He heals them both and doesn't care about their circumstances. He simply cares that a person made in the image of God is in need and he listens and responds. So that's the important first thing to understand about this. Here's the second. When we compare, uh, excuse me, when we compare how both of these people, so very different, come to Jesus, we realize that there is a similarity, that they're both different, different poles. They come to Jesus in the same way and find healing because of the same way Jesus responds to them. Here's what I mean by that. Both of them need something from Jesus. They want something from Jesus, but both of them go from beyond saying, Jesus, I want something from you, to saying, Jesus, I trust you. And that's where the true healing comes. That's an important distinction because it's very easy for us to do the first without moving on to start doing the second. Now, to illustrate what I mean by that, listen to what happens to this woman. She says in verse 29, immediately her hemorrhage, so this is after touching Jesus' cloak, immediately her hemorrhage stopped. She felt in her body she was healed of her disease. And we're told, immediately where power had gone forth from him, Jesus turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? So here the woman is already healed. She got exactly what she wants. But you notice she doesn't just take off. Instead, what happens? Jesus feels power has gone out from him into this woman. He knows she's been healed. Then he stops and he speaks with her. The woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, fell down before him, and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. You see what happens? Not only does she get something, she falls down before Jesus and tells him the whole truth. She reaches out to touch him and be healed, but to tell him the truth and to come before him is something more. She is trusting him with her innermost secrets and truth. She comes to Jesus and shares her true self. Jairus does the same. Look at what happens. Jairus, the synagogue leader, after Jesus has been just trading blows with other synagogue leaders and Pharisees amongst the religious establishment, Jairus takes an enormous risk by coming to Jesus, and what does he do? He doesn't just say, hey, come over to my house. He falls in front of him and says, he fell at his feet, begged him repeatedly, my little daughter is at the point of death, come. Lay your hands on her so she may be made well and live. She, he is humbling himself, taking a risk in coming to Jesus. And more than that, as we get a little bit later, while he was still speaking, we hear in verse 35, some people came from the leader's house to say, your daughter's dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? When they came to the house of the leader, he saw a commotion, people weeping, wailing. Jesus says, why do you make a commotion and weep? The child's not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Here, what Jairus is being asked is something really interesting. This uh, person is going into a room where his daughter lays dead. 
And everyone is laughing and saying, there's nothing Jesus can do. What is this man being challenged to do? To go into this room to have his hopes raised and be shown only to have his hopes even further dashed. Here's a man who is risking something to follow Jesus by going into that room and seeing what Christ can do and finding that his hopes, his greatest hopes are realized. I'd like to suggest that in both of these circumstances, what really is important is the trust they place in Christ. Not simply asking him for something, but actually believing and trusting in him in a way that risks something. And I think that's really important for us because, frankly, it is tremendously challenging or tempting for us to look to Jesus for the things he can do for us, not to move forward to saying, I actually trust you. You know, if you don't follow our Facebook account or our Twitter account, I encourage you to do so because I don't just sort of put, uh, you know, Father Stephen's great sermon is up again. What I also do is I try to put articles that talk about interesting things related to faith. And so some of the things I've been putting up are ways in which faith has been shown empirically to make a difference in people's lives. You know, for example, that a person who attends church regularly uh, reports less social isolation, less loneliness. We find uh, medical and scientific data tells us that prayer uh, is something you measurably in saying people who pray regularly have greater psychological health. There's a psychological health benefit. People uh, who attend church regularly as a couple and people who pray together have lower instances of divorce. There's uh, much more sense that people have, uh, I no longer feel alone because people in my church care for me. These are all benefits that are completely legitimate to come to church for. And if you think about your own life, often it's because I've got a friend that I want to see and I want to catch up with them. These are all great things. Or you may feel I'm uplifted by the music or by the sermon. All great things, totally fine. But how easy is it to forget that in the midst of the great blessings God gives us through our participation in church and in faith, He is also issuing us a challenge. Do you trust me? You know, one of the things that you'll notice when you listen to sermons, at least when I do them well, is that Jesus keeps telling us difficult things. You may hear something that's uplifting. I just mentioned how Jesus says he cares for you regardless of your circumstances. Very great, wonderful to feel. But you also notice how many tough things he says. Think about something as simple as the core affirmation Jesus says we are to hold on to, to love your neighbor as yourself. That sounds great, how wonderful. Until your neighbor's a jerk. Jesus, do you realize how tough it is to love this jerk? It's pretty tough. What if your neighbor is your boss? What if your neighbor is the coworker who you find frustrating and boring? What if your neighbor uh, is the person um, you know, that you uh, literally live next to who plays music too loud? These are all things that when Jesus says do this, he doesn't just say crack the whip and I'll punish you. He says, do you trust me? Do you trust me that though this is difficult, it is still the right way to live? Bless those who curse you? How difficult that can be. But Jesus is telling us, do you trust me? Will you bless those who hate you? Will you love your enemy even though your natural instinct is to hate him back? Let me tell you, trust me. And I believe that if you follow me in loving your neighbor, you will actually grow in virtue and peace. Again and again, Jesus is saying this. Or when you think when you come to the altar and receive communion, have you ever noticed that you don't come up and receive communion and grab something? You put your hands out and you wait to receive. It's not because I'm better than you and I'm given the, the authority to do wonderful things because of my great, great uh, spiritual gravity. Do you know why he, he reserves some things for clergy to do? It's not because of their greater spiritual weight. Instead, it trains us to say that when we come to God, we are continually coming to ask. 
to look outside of ourselves. If you think about how it is we enter the Christian life, it's through baptism, something that somebody else does for us. And in the end, what humbles us? How do we trust God when we say, I need you to feed me? I come and I open my hands because I know that I need your strength, Jesus, to do the things you've called me to do and to live a godly life. It's not because Father Stephen is great. It is because God is great. When you come, you're continually being asked, do you trust this person? And what did you see happen in this story? This woman is healed when she needs something from Jesus, but there's a greater step. Jesus says, go and have peace. Your faith has made you well. Your trust in me has made you well. Now live in peace. Jairus' trust in Jesus is what brought that joy to his life. And that's what brings us joy. By trusting him in difficult circumstances, we find that there is someone who gives us a compass in life when everything else is, is in chaos. When you find difficulties in life, yes, those will happen. But you have someone you can trust. And when you trust him in the good times, you train yourself to believe that he can be trusted in the bad times too. When the bottom drops out of your life, you've got someone you can rely on because he will be the foundation of your life. But you'll learn that only by taking the small steps of trusting him day by day and doing the tough things he asks us to do. I'd like to wrap things up now, not by saying a prayer as I usually do, but instead by giving a minute of silence because I'd like you to take that opportunity to actually tell Jesus in your own heart, I trust you. Now, I know that Jesus doesn't constantly need to be told this, but it is important, just as it is in any relationship, to say you mean something to me. Take a minute of quiet. Tell him you trust him. Make it your focus this week to find practical ways that you can follow in his steps.